Hello and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. I'm Simone de Rochefort, supervising video producer at Polygon, and I'm here today with Christina Warren, uh, senior developer advocate at GitHub. That's right. And Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack. How's it going? Hello. It's it's an exciting week. It is an exciting week. We have a lot to look forward to, uh, most of which is on this show. We are going to be talking about the results of the FTC versus Microsoft and what's next, as well as Facebook's, uh, the next iteration of Facebook's own large language model, Llama 2. Then we have a special guest on the show. Kat Tenbarge of NBC News is coming on to talk about a beauty YouTuber that we've covered before, James Charles, trying to uncancel himself. Hmm. And she's joining us again for Rocket Booster, our bonus segment for subscribers, to talk about Barbenheimer, the double feature that is uh, going to break the internet this weekend. Uh, And in fact, now and tomorrow and the day before yesterday, it's all everyone's seeing it. Uh, everyone's seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer, and they are all talking about it. So we're going to be talking uh, a no spoiler discussion because we haven't seen either of them yet, but about the cultural event that is these two blockbusters coming out the same week. And if you want to learn more about how you can support us directly and get a bonus segment and an ad free show, you can head to relay.fm slash membership and learn about these things. All right, we got a lot of big news to cover, so let's get right into it. Last week, Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley granted Microsoft permission to close the Activision acquisition, denying the FTC's preliminary injunction to delay any of the moving and shaking until after the antitrust case resolves. Uh, Specifically, the judge wrote, the court finds the FTC has not shown a likelihood that it will prevail on its claim that with on its claim that this particular uh, vertical merger in this specific industry may substantially lessen competition, something that we have talked about extensively. Uh, She went on, to the contrary, the record evidence points to more consumer access to Call of Duty and other Activision content. Uh, The ruling noted all of the commitments made throughout this process to bring Call of Duty to various platforms, including the Nintendo Switch, as well as, (laughs) and she'll go, what great, I'm sure, as well as to put Activision games on cloud gaming services. Meanwhile, after the decision was made, like the FTC still wants to appeal the decision, but more importantly, Microsoft and Activision uh, agreed to skip their initial deadline to merge, which was July 18th, and said, okay, we're extending these discussions up until October 18th in an effort to sort out their issues with the UK's regulators. However, both companies are targeting a much earlier date to actually close that deal. The 18th is just like do or die um, and hope to get approval from the UK by end of August. What's going on there uh, is the UK's Competition and Markets Authority is still blocking the deal over concerns about access to cloud gaming. Hearings on that appeal will start on July 28th. Um, Microsoft has appealed their their, uh, decision to block the thing and uh, hearings on that will start July 28th. They could potentially still carve out something for the UK and close the deal anyway, but it's pretty clear from like the, this decision to extend that they want to work with the CMA to figure out how to address the stipulations around cloud gaming accessibility. The CMA also separately tried to delay Microsoft's appeal to their block 
and said basically like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. Let's not do this now. Don't appeal our block of your multi-billion dollar corporate merger. We're, we're, we're not ready. We're not ready. We're not it's ready. It's basically what they're saying. It. <laughs> basically, I think it's like, it's like they looked at how Microsoft, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm, you know, conflict of interest here, but completely wiped the floor with um, the FTC. <laughs> like, yeah. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. And they're like, oh, no, we, we, we don't want to go against you in court. Yeah, and that that's basically so that's the where we are now. That's the end of my summary. And I think maybe the first thing that we should talk about is that um statement from the judge, Judge Corley about uh, where she basically said like I don't think the FTC is gonna is gonna like <laughs> be able to pull this one off, guys. It does not look like they have a a very successful case here. So go ahead and, you know, get moving um because that's kind of what we have said all along is like yes there are concerns no i don't think that the gaming industry should be run by these massive monolith companies however saying that microsoft of all of the companies is the one that is going to like stymie the availability of games on other platforms is patently ridiculous it goes against both their actions and also what i i think is good common sense yeah (laughs) um it's the reason that they have grown as much as they have is that these games are available um cross-platform and the ftc's case like while i uh, while i'm not a fan of the merger the case was bad (laughs) yeah yeah i mean they did such a terrible job and it was one of those things where you know like it it was one of the things that to me, I, I honestly, not that I ever have a lot of faith in government, but it really made me have even less faith because I was like, oh my God, these are your best people and this is what you spend your time on. And there are real issues that the FTC should go after. And I'm like, if this is what you're doing against like a merger here, and, and to be clear, there could be some very real things you could bring in. And and they totally just went for like the worst stuff. And then, you know, Microsoft is up on the stand where they're admitting, you know, how much money they don't make on certain things and how far yeah. behind they are from their competitors and, you know, very clearly why it would not be in their best interest to, um, you know, not have Call of Duty um, on on PlayStation. And also, you know, you have like further emails from from Sony coming in and, and, and things from them where it's very clear to me where they've been like literally acting the complete <laughs> opposite. We are like, OK, if there's a real villain here, you know, like, let's all be happy that Sony didn't have the money to acquire Activision Blizzard because they would definitely cut off anybody's access Absolutely. to anything. Absolutely, You know what I mean? Like, it's just it's it's sort of laughable. Um, but uh, which oh, that was another thing that happened, too. So before we get the CMA approval, Sony and, and Microsoft have gone ahead and agreed to like uh, a term, I, I think extending another 10 years of, of Call of Duty on PlayStation. So even Sony mm-hmm. is like, we know this is going to happen. Like, I, th- I think as soon as the yeah. FTC and the EU did it, like now it's just a matter of time for them to work out probably some stuff to make the make, make the UK not look as embarrassed as it, as they would look, you know, um, uh, otherwise, because I have a feeling for them wanting to delay things that they are they're not prepared to to address this in court. Yeah. Yeah. Brie, I, mean, any- I mean, I don't know what to say. It's it's the same thing, right? Like it's it's not there are clearly regulatory issues at play here. 
Uh, it was not a very good lawsuit, uh, the way it was brought. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's inevitably going to come, and most of the drama is like, is it going to close in time for them not to, like, pay these fees? Um, you know, I think it's it's forced Sony and PlayStation, I mean, Sony and Microsoft, to talk to each other a little bit more about, like, sharing exclusives, which I think is going to have a, a low-level, you know, positive effect for, like, um, more access if you only have one of those two platforms. But overall, I I think you're dead on, Christina. This just, um, it was not the government's finest hour. And I think it it really, um, I think it draws into questions why this was flagged um, in the first place if they're not going to, you know, aggressively pursue this, right? Right. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. this is, this got a lot of attention and it just, it, it frankly, when the government fails at something, you know, it, it really has a, like a longstanding effect, right? Like prosecutors, district attorneys, they tend to only go after cases that they think they can win, which is why, you know, this week's uh, you know, news about uh, additional charges against the president is so noteworthy, right? That really gives you a sense of how confident they feel about this. Um, for them to go up against it and just get shredded, it's, it's frankly embarrassing for the Biden administration. I completely mm-hmm. agree. Like, again, like, I, I don't understand, like, why are you doing this um, if if you're not going to actually be able to do it? Like, if you're going to go, and I mean, and here's the thing, too, like, this this is a company that for better or worse, and look, Microsoft is not the same company, not even close to who it was, you know, 20 plus years ago when when it went against the Justice Department um, for uh, a, a, a much you know, a bigger case um, for uh, uh, antitrust stuff. But, but Microsoft is a formidable company to go against in court. So why would you, like Brad Smith is a very, very good, um, like he's the the president of Microsoft and he is basically like chief uh, uh, legal counsel. Like he's not somebody who is bad at what he does. Why would you want to go against him if you're not going to (laughs) literally bring your A game? You know what I mean? Like it just makes no sense to me. Last week, if you want to, if you want a job right now, become a corporate lawyer. Yeah. (laughs) Cause they are busy. (laughs) Uh, but competition is probably fierce. Now, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. It is disappointing to see something be whiffed like this. And I really, I think it speaks to how unversed the government still is in issues around the internet and yes. gaming and technology, <laughs> especially when this is not our government, obviously, but when you look at um, the CMA's um block which we talked about when that originally happened what they were saying the the arguments that they were making just make no sense at all in terms of like what they want microsoft to be able to accomplish in terms of cloud gaming um and that technology and it's and people's ability to access it it's like there there's so many it, it, they just are missing some crucial information and that has been true since we started this show freaking eight years ago it remains true and it is baffling how the government is still so bad at talking about these issues and like we see it here we see it in the constant calling of like hey facebook hey twitter come come let us grill you for five hours and then do not with the dumbest questions in the world and then do nothing mm-hmm. uh, in Congress. Um, it's all part of the same trend, and it's a bummer. Yep. Yeah. Any more thoughts on Microsoft FTC before I move I'm on? Good to go. Heck yeah. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by HelloFresh. 
Oh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. You can skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it is America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh sends you pre-portioned ingredients to help cut down both on food waste uh, and also step-by-step instructions to make cooking a breeze, not a chore. So they're cutting down on food waste and on time waste. Uh, Right now, it is the peak time for summer produce, and HelloFresh makes sure that you get all the best picks all season long. Their ingredients travel from the farm to your door in less than seven days for quality that you can taste. And if you're looking to eat well this summer, HelloFresh can help. Their menu features both calorie smart and protein smart lunch and dinner options, plus new vegan dinners to choose from. So it's easy to reach your food goals with flavorful recipes that leave you feeling satisfied. I will not be talking about those vegan options to you because I have a box on the way that is from the uh, meat and veggies menu, which they say is their most popular menu. Makes sense because it all looks really freaking good. Uh, there are pot. I, I don't. I, I'm not sure exactly what I'm gonna get because I, I think it's it's coming next week. But I could potentially get sweet chili pork and cabbage stir fry, which sounds that's freaking amazing. I make amazing. that all the time. Yeah. Heck yeah. Um, I could also maybe get Alfredo style spaghetti with herbed pork. I will be honest. I myself made an Alfredo uh, spaghetti with pork sausage a couple weeks ago, and it was so disappointing. So I would like to have another shot at it, (laughs) and I would like that shot to come from HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients um, and instructions that I will follow correctly. Okay, so I have used HelloFresh for four years. I have a lot of opinions about this particular sponsor. I have tried every single, like, boxed meal service in the industry because I love to cook. HelloFresh is, it's the Ferrari of these box meals. It is amazing. The quality is the best. The meals are the best. And what I love about it is, depending on how much time you're going to have that week, you can really, really plan it out. So some of their meals are like super quick things to make. Like it tells you how long it's going to be. It really does take you that long. Like tacos, if you want to spend 20 minutes making a meal. But what they have are these premium options So if you're going to be having like guests over or do a dinner party, something I do pretty often, you can go and get like a lobster or a premium steak that week or like Mm. something really, really gourmet and challenging for you as a cook. So it just like depending on what's going to happen that week, you can really figure it out. Another thing that I really love about HelloFresh is they're so upfront about the calories in it. So you can really like choose what you want to put in the meal a lot of the time, depending on how like fatty or like vegetarian or whatever you want it to be. Cause sometimes I'll see stuff and I'll be like, Oh, that's a little rich for my taste, but then you can sub in like a different kind of meat and the, the recipe like adjusts for it. So it is so flexible. You can like order like cheese plates as you're doing it. They will send you stuff. So you get like a box kit for a turkey dinner. If you want to order that, like HelloFresh is just completely the best in the industry. Top to bottom. I've used them for four years. We'll never stop. I love the sponsor. 
forward to my box. <laughs> if you want to look forward to a box, go to HelloFresh.com slash Rocket50 and use code Rocket50 for 50% off. Fr- uh, yeah, 50% off plus free shipping. Ah, wow. That is all lowercase letters. H-E-L-L-O-F-R-E-S-H dot com slash Rocket50. Five zero, the number is five zero, and use the code Rocket five zero for fifty percent off plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Go right now to hellofresh.com/rocket50. Use Rocket fifty for fifty percent off plus free shipping. Our thanks to HelloFresh for their support of this show and Relay FM. Well, well, well. In other news, Meta has announced. Llama 2, or Large Language Model Meta AI, uh, the next generation of its large language model, and more importantly, that it will be open source and free for research and commercial use. Microsoft is also continuing to partner with Meta uh, on this, which means that Llama 2 is available in the Azure AI model catalog for devs to build with, and it will run locally on Windows. So this, uh, I mean... Is pretty freaking <laughs> massive in terms of the avail- availability to developers to access a large language model and to build apps with it or chatbots with it or basically anything in the world. Um, and that's wild. That that's the entirety of my context. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think so this is a big deal. So for a long time, um, I've been saying privately to people, and and I might have mentioned it on the show. I'm not really sure, but I've been saying to people, you know, most people have been looking at the obvious, really big kind of um, sleeping giant in the AI space as being Google, because Google largely pioneered a lot of the technology in this space. The whole idea of kind of transformers itself comes from Google's um, research and and. Uh, They've been famously late to the, the productization and commercialization of this tech, but um, and and obviously OpenAI, who uh, disclosure, uh, my, my company, uh, the company that I work for, rather uh, GitHub has a partnership with, and who the company that my com- the company I work for um, is owned by Microsoft um, has deep investments in. Um, OpenAI um, has you know, gotten out and in front and there are some other large language models available from other sources, but OpenAI is, is the big one, um, with, with, you know, Google talking about, uh, how their access, um, will, will be to some of their model stuff, um, still kind of a, a TBD thing and, and it's not quite there. When Llama, the first version was leaked, um, earlier this year, like in February, I think it actually leaked on 4chan, which is hilarious. <laughs> and then they they did release it publicly af- after it leaked. There was, I think, kind of a, a some surprise in some circles. And in my mind, I'm like, no, you know, if you want to talk about who has access to a really good training set, um, just at not even having to scrape the web, but just with what they have themselves, Facebook is is key there, and they have very very strong um, minds working on um, uh, AI um, and um, uh, you know. Um, they have very, very big leaders who've been in that space. And so I've been saying to people for a long time, you know, I don't really look at Google as being the sleeping giant. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's meta. And what we're seeing with this, because this is a big deal is it's not so much that what they've released is a competitor to chat GPT, because to be clear, although I'm sure that internally they have tools, they haven't released a productized tool like chat GPT, but what they have Mm -hmm. done is they've open access. It's not really open source because there are some limitations 
um, which we can talk about because some of them are kind of interesting um, uh, because they target very specific companies if you look at what the limitations are. But they're Ooh, basically making this – um, you know, openly available to, to researchers and, and commercial users to basically say, okay, you can take our model, you can run it on a cloud, which disclosure is uh, the preferred cloud is, is Microsoft's, um, but you could also run it on AWS or presumably some other thing. You can also run it locally and you can build things on top of this. We're giving this out to you in, in a similar way that they um, really, um, you know, uh, pioneered a lot of the tooling with that led to the training of these AI models with a tool called PyTorch. And um, a, a decade ago in the, the web space uh, with a, you know, a, a, a node um, JavaScript framework uh, called React. So this is really interesting because this potentially means that, like, we don't still know like how competitive this is with what GPT 3.5 or, or GPT 4 is, but rather than having to pay for access to the model, whether you get it hosted or or you do it on your own, this is um, source available so people can look into it, they can train it themselves, and then they can also you know run it locally. I think we're going to see some companies really expanding upon what they can build um, using these tools. So it's exciting. So how I mean, one of the things I think is really interesting in the space is you do still see this influx of investment in this. And yeah. like one of the stories I wanted to propose last week, but Simone and I just didn't have time is, <laughs> is investors have started investing in AI over crypto, which yeah. I think is a net positive for humanity. Even 100%. big uh, investment firms that bet big on crypto have abandoned that and they're now doing AI. But there does seem... Um, I think it's it's natural that there's going to be some repetition of some of the, the base technologies along yes. this. But I think there's a real question uh, that with all of this money flowing into the space, is it resulting in learning that's commensurate to that? Or are we kind of hitting a, a limit of how much we're learning or doing new things? I think that's... that's I think that's I, an open I'm question. Not, I'm not sure we are. Right. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, and I don't I don't know where we are. I mean, there a lot of people have basically kind of said, uh, you know, people who are much smarter about this than me have have kind of opined that at a certain point the the size, like like how many you know um, billions of transformers these models have, will no longer really matter because mm-hmm. you'll basically have scraped everything. You'll need to go more specialized. And I think that's probably true, right. but I do think we're probably still at the point now where we can get more learnings and more things out of it. I, I certainly don't think it's a bad thing to have access to more of these data sets where you could potentially, you know, start, you know, um, uh, tuning like a subset of these things for specific use cases. Um, and, then, and then that might lead into other future, you know, um, models um, that, that, that could be used in, in other ways. But I think that's a good point. Like I, at, at a certain point, like there is a, an aspect of a lot of this stuff, which I think will become kind of commoditized. And then the part of it that is not going to really be easily to commoditize is what you're building on top of. So it's kind of going to become like a mobile app, right? Like you have like um, I, I, either a framework, you know, if you're iOS or Android, and many times, you know, if you're using Swift or you're using Kotlin or whatever, like that's kind of your base level, but you might have a, a package that you're using to more quickly get up to speed on that. And I think that's that's what's kind of emerging here. And that's the thing that, you know, um, even though you might be able to, there might not be a huge variation ultimately between some of these things, whoever I think is able to kind of get out there and, and get, um, make it uh, seem, you know, uh, more interesting and, and easier to build on top of their tools first 
will have a big advantage for the the things people will do with with this underlying tech. So so let me ask you this because I'm on record like I've used a lot of chat GPT. Um, I've used Bing quite a bit. I love Bing. I use it all the time. I, I think it's really really interesting technology. I also think and and don't misread me. I'm not saying the fate is going to be the same. But I think one of the things with VR that we experienced is it was really, really dazzling when we first sat down and started using VR, and then it kind of didn't have a second app. Right. I think that we're kind of at this point where we've all dabbled around with ChatGPT or Bing and asked it to write like Excel scripts, and I've done it. It's dazzling. I've used it multiple times to help me work through like pull data sets and and collate them in in ways that are helpful. Love that. Fantastic product. But since you're kind of on the front line of seeing what developers are kind of thinking about and talking about with this tech, beyond like doing rudimentary, like not rudimentary, but not particularly complex programming exercises and kind of generative chat and, and, you know, art. What are some of the applications that you're seeing people start to think about in the space that could like really change things? Oh, I mean, I think that both of those two areas are still, there's a lot to kind of be like mined from mm-hmm. that, right? Like I, I think that the, the, the art capabilities, which are just going to get better and better. I also think, and, and this is an area that we saw before, this space really exploded, but really is around like image recognition and, and is around, you know, things like upscaling and is around, you know, like pattern recognition and things like that. I think that as this gets better, this is, this has massive potential, um, in, in medical instances, right. Where you could uh, talk about throwing some of these things at, you know, a certain model and it maybe being able to pick up stuff that you wouldn't always be able to see so that something so that a, a human can go back and take a second look at something. Like I think that's a, a really big area, um, a, c- kind of ca- the categorization space. Another space that we haven't talked about as much, but is, I think, equally important. And this is work that a lot of it did come out last year. And actually, Facebook um, notably has done some incredible research around this is around translations. And so, um, mm. you know, Whisper, which which is an amazing thing. This is from from OpenAI, which will basically in your, you know, does very quick, very, very accurate transcriptions of, of speech to text or text to speech, but it can also translate between languages. But what Facebook has done, and this is remarkable, is that there is there are some um, languages in the world that are at the risk of going dead because they don't ex- exist in written form. They only exhibit, exist orally and there are only a few speakers of them in, in very small regions of the world. And Facebook uh, released some research last year, which was pretty remarkable about how they were able to create kind of like a, a translation layer between uh, around that language so that be- people can communicate um, two ways with them. I think that's the sort of thing that is really incredible. If you think about getting that down to a near real-time experience, that could have transformative effects on just how we communicate with people. Um, like, like on another level, if I could suddenly be talking to someone across the world on, on FaceTime or even audio call, and it's able to translate in near real time and, and we don't have any sort of pause in our conversation, like think about the power of that. Um, Mm -hmm. because we've certainly had things like that getting better and better, but not the level that we have it now. And I Mm -hmm. think that that, that, that is a really, really interesting space. I wanted to ask you briefly about the what you thought about the reporting around this because I one of the pieces that we like read in prep for the show was the New York Times piece yeah which frames it 
being open source as like this potential danger. And I found myself in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with a Facebook executive. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I, I, I completely agree with the argument put forward by Facebook, which is like the, and this having people have access to this allows us to stress test it to the maximum and keeps it transparent for people to see like what's going on here how is the model reacting what is it learning um what is it able to create and i do i i buy that argument i really do i I think that in cases like this it is it is useful to to have it be accessible and to be able to see what's happening with it and what's being made. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there are two arguments you can make. I think one is exactly what you just said and what Facebook argues, which is having the transparency is important. And and I largely agree with that. Um, I think that having transparency with these things is really important because when they're black boxes, then it is really difficult to find out where there are problematic parts. And to be clear, there are problematic aspects to a lot of this. These training sets are not unbiased. They are not, they are not without flaws. These are not things that should be relied on day in and day out. That is a big concern I have with a lot of these investments is that companies are investing with anything that says AI on it and not understanding the limitations that exist and that these should be helpers, not replacements. You know, these should be additive, um, you know, and and, and not um, full full stock, you know, re- replacements. Um, I think the, the, the counter argument that people would make is that sometimes you do have to have things be a little bit more closed or at least have some restrictions on the use because put in the wrong hands, we're going to be talking about Oppenheimer um, in, in our uh, rocket booster segment, you know, things could go really, yeah. really haywire. And so I think that's the counter argument. What's interesting about how Facebook did this, and, and, and I was a little bit annoyed with the press's reporting on this because it's a semantic thing, but it's not. They Facebook says we open sourced this. They didn't. They, they gave open access to this, right? Mm-hmm. But they didn't truly open source this if you're going to follow the the open source initiatives, open source definition, because they did put limitations on who can use this. They said, you can use this commercially or for research. That's huge. However, if the company that is going to be using this commercially or um, for research if, or its parent company has more than 700 million users, and they chose that number specifically, then you need to have an exclusive license grant from Facebook. Facebook has to get involved and approve that you can use this mm-hmm. model. Okay, who does that impact? All right, well, who has more than 700 million users? Well, that would be TikTok. Okay, that's number one. That would be Snapchat, right? They have 753 million. That would be number two. That would be WeChat and, and Baidu and, and the various um, Chinese um, uh, clouds, you know, so it's interesting. Who are who are some of Facebook's biggest competitors? Yeah, those, those companies. TikTok, and yep. so that that to me was really notable that that part was kind of skimmed over. Um, there's also um, some uh, it's very salient. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I that, that 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 I think is interesting and notable. Um, it, it doesn't take away from the fact that these things are still going to have access by way more people, but like never forget that Facebook is not a charity, right? Like they have very clear yeah. ambitions around this and that does not include acting as research or training data or, you know, to, um, uh, you know, uh, build up the, the network of, of their biggest competitors. Um, and so, uh, they also have some, some use restrictions, uh, like basically meaning you can't do it for harm. Like there, there's some very, which, which I think is a good thing. And I think that's, that's the thing that, um, worries a lot of people about how this stuff will be used. Now, 
I want to I want to point out yeah. one of the quotes from the New York Times piece that I, I thought was very funny, just on the topic of doing harm. Uh, meta executives argue that their strategy is not as risky as many believe. They say that people can already generate large amounts of disinformation and hate speech without using AI. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I just found the framing of it incredibly funny. It is. I mean, especially I mean, I, I love it where it's like to, to me, my favorite part of that is they're like, oh, and there's very little. Um, you know, like it seems to be self-awareness of, oh, and how have they generated? Yeah. <laughs> how, 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 how have they published that information? How is that? How has that disinformation been published hmm. and spread? Hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, OK, so obviously this is as you've covered eloquently, this is a big deal. Um, and it's we're certainly going to see the emergence of a lot more applications of this I think, <sighs> in the future. So ugh. it's going to be great. The future's looking great, y'all. Yep. Uh, all right, let's move into our dessert. For our final segment today, we have a very special guest, and that person is Kat Tenbarge, tech and culture reporter of NBC News. Uh, and she is joining us yes. to talk about a topic yes. uh, near and, well, no, I guess not near and dear, really, but a topic that we have covered on this show before. Uh, a recent interview with Cosmopolitan saw disgraced YouTuber James Charles asking to be uncancelled and laying out his plans for a comeback. So longtime listeners of the show will know that James Charles is a beauty YouTuber or perhaps former beauty YouTuber um, and like makeup creator who was revealed to have had inappropriate conversations with minors back in 2021, uh, had a major falling out with other YouTubers as a result, as well as with the entire public, who understandably <laughs> was like, what the heck? Uh, and is now trying to stage a comeback. Uh, oh, huh. gosh. Huh. We had to have Kat on for this. We had to. We had to talk <laughs> about the drama get in like round what round this is I think five. Round fifty. Yeah. <laughs> we had to talk to Kat about this because this wow. Yeah, Kat, tell us a little more about how this is in your wheelhouse and like what your relationship to, I guess, this this kind of internet culture reporting is. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This is something that I know way too much about. Um <laughs> I've been covering James Charles for years, especially in the years leading up to and during this controversy. So it's something that I am very familiar with and definitely was not surprised to see this Cosmopolitan interview because it's definitely the narrative that James has been pushing since this controversy really unfolded in the first place in 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he it, it, it's kind of like clockwork, right? When these creators do something inappropriate and then lay low for like a year, two years and then kind of creep back into the spotlight. I mean, I swear to God, I read this piece originally because one of my friends linked to it on Facebook and she wasn't having it. And then I read it and I got angry, all, <laughs> like really angry reading it. And I go, yeah, but maybe I'm being unfair. No. You know, I need to go check out Kat's Twitter because <laughs> she understands this stuff way better than I do. This is literally her beat. Let's see what she says. Oh, and you're not having it. I recommend everybody <laughs> go read your tweets about it. It's amazing. So I was like, good. My assessment is fair. I've done my due diligence. It's okay to be angry right now. Yeah, I've had multiple people reach out to me, which this is something that the article touches on towards the beginning, 
Um, it's not uncommon for people to ask me what really happened with the James Charles scandal and allegations. And that's been a big theme of James Charles over the years is the allegations and controversies being so um, like niche and so nuanced that unless you're really, really looking at all the details on a regular basis, you might end up missing a lot or you might end up getting confused about all the different threads. Um, but what I think that, you know, this article really failed to do and in the process ended up masking and kind of falling into James's trap that he was laying here is they really failed to actually interrogate what he was accused of in the first yes. place and just sort of skim it over. Uh, yes. Okay. Thank you. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. But either of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are, what, what was missing from it? Yeah. I mean, I went back and reread some of my own coverage from that point because when we ran the tally in 2021, at the time that James was making this public apology and sort of justification, there were around 15 people who had relayed some sort of allegation or concern uh, that escalated because of a personal interaction with James. And so there was a scale of things happening here, which a lot of times people will be very dismissive of things that fall on the quote-unquote less harmful end of the scale. But I think that's a pretty unsophisticated approach, especially when on the most severe end of the scale, you had people coming forward with compelling you know, screenshots and testimony saying that they had been interacting with James on social media when they were as young as 14, 15 years old, when he was, you know, 19 and 20, and that he was well aware of their ages because it was listed in their profiles, and that he would send them inappropriate pictures, semi-nude photos, uh, sexual invitation and innuendo, and that he would also ask a lot of these boys who were, you know, between the ages of 15 and then some who were of legal age, um, but, you know, some really young to ask them to reciprocate. And so there were boys coming forward saying that they had sent him photos, that they had received photos. Mm-hmm. And James acknowledged, um, you know, he acknowledged a couple of these allegations, but he very carefully did not acknowledge a lot of them. Yes. And so that's the same thing that we see happening in the article is they only look at the ones that he addressed and his way of addressing them was he said that the boys lied about their age, um, which, you know, the actual boys disputed contemporaneously. Right. But Mm -hmm. that's not mentioned in the article either. Right, right. And not only that, but, I mean, A, that actually doesn't matter. I mean, people can look up what happened to Rob Lowe, where people actually had fake IDs, and and then there was videotape stuff, and and he was brought up on on charges for that. That ruined his career for a long time. Think about that. Right. That was and that was a consensual situation where now actually the age of consent in the state of Georgia would not have made that a crime at all. Um, but uh, I digress. But like that that was something that before social media literally ruined someone's career. The age right. thing doesn't to me hold up, and it wasn't interrogated at all. To your point, and it also doesn't go into the fact that, like, the article was frustrating to me. And just to give readers, uh, listeners, some context, this was a, a, a profile in Cosmopolitan that was basically trying to uncancel James Charles, uh, which mm-hmm. you know is, is what what its title basically was and its attempt to do. Um, very lightly, kind of it conflated. Um, I think the 2021 allegations with 
the initial kind of um, reporting of, of, you know, smarmy and grossness that, that, that Tati did with her, you know, famous um, by sister video in 2019, like it conflated a bunch of the different allegations, which I think to your point really weakened intentionally. So how, you know, problematic and, and messed up a lot of the stuff really is. Yep. Yes. So yeah. I have I have two objections here. I mean, the first is like I have a puppy right now. I don't blame my puppy when he pees on the floor, right? He's a puppy. And in that same way, I don't blame James Charles for trying to come back and uh, basically paper over and not really face accountability for what he did, which was, let's, let's be honest, like my opinion reading everything I've seen on him is, look, he's horned up, he's famous, uh, he wants to you know, be an F-boy about town, and uh, just for whatever reason, uh, either he did not do his due diligence on uh, basically the people that he was pursuing uh, um, on a relationship le- level, or he ended up getting caught. Like, pick which one. Uh, either is not great. There's a wider conversation about um, basically how people who are celebrities and young fans are into them, what the, um, basically, the, the, the boundaries that you need uh, because you can inadvertently damage them for life. I think I've at no point seen uh, a serious discussion of what happens to people that are children, basically, when they get preyed on by powerful celebrities how that like affects them developmentally. I think that's a conversation we're pursuing. But anyway, that's all in one corner, right? I expect very little from the from the James Charleses of the world. Mm-hmm. What I'm really angry about and what I want to talk about is this Cosmo piece, which is just terrible. It is whitewashing on every level. It feels like it's masquerading as journalism Mm -hmm. when it's really not, in my opinion. Like, that's my big issue here. I mean, do y'all feel the same way? Yeah, Yeah. I do. And, you know, I think that it kind of falls into somewhat of a trend that I've been noticing here and there. It's become almost a genre unto itself, like the comeback profile. And of course, this existed in a pre-MeToo context. There's always been um, sort of the paradigm of the comeback arc and profile. But particularly in the past couple of years, we saw this with Army Hammer and Airmail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're seeing it just a couple hours ago. There was a Vanity Fair piece about Colleen Ballinger that kind of took this approach and Already? I was going to say, yes, I, was like, exactly. I, was like, I was like, how no. early are we? Like, this is insane. <laughs> no. Yes. It's like this very ham-fisted cancel culture has gone too far and people exaggerate things on the internet for attention and we let them get away with it. And it just doesn't actually pan out with the evidence. And you tell you can tell that it doesn't because either the reporter ends up twisting themselves into illogical knots to try and justify why this person didn't actually do it, which, you know, I just think at some point it's journalistic negligence to kind of prop up a cover-up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like the the uh, independent.co piece that I read is one that mentions that there were 15 people who accused him and links out to your 
article, right. uh, Business Insider at the time, Kat. I was like, hey. Well, well, I was going to say, that, that, yeah. that's what got me about this is that, like, I'm not going to pretend like I know the intricacies of how this piece was happened. Um, what I assume happened, because the the writer who I should disclose, I, I do know, um, I mean, I haven't talked to her in years, but we, we did used to work for the same parent company um, and, um, you know, who I, I previously haven't had any issue with her work, but she's a freelancer. Um, on this piece. So I assume that someone approached her. It's very similar to the um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes thing where a publicist Mm -hmm. reaches out to a reporter, pitches them, do you want to do something? And then she pitches publications. Uh, You know, in this case is Cosmo uh, picked it up. But, you know, I'm not going to speculate why the publicist would would have chosen um, uh, Gabby to write this, except to say, like, it's very clear reading the piece and that she does not know the history. She is not seeped in this. That's intentional. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, because it, it and, and to me, it honestly weakens it. If you really wanted to do a comeback piece, to me, if there really was signs of contrition, if there really were opportunities for growth, right. if there really was change, then you would pick someone who would actually be doing due diligence, even if they weren't embedded in the culture, right? You might say, okay, I'm not, right. not going to maybe choose Kat because she's too close to it and, and maybe it wouldn't be the right opportunity, but I will have someone who I can trust will go above and beyond. But that didn't happen here. This is literally somebody who seemed to be vaguely aware of you know, the drama from her own admission and then took everything at face value and did the the least amount of legwork possible to, um, clear, I guess, to uh, uh, find proof and in, in to verify. There we go. That's the word I'm looking for, to verify what he was saying. And and that, I think, yeah. is just unconscionable to me. Yeah. And I my feeling on it is generally like, when when what you have been accused of is something like this, I don't think he should be cast out of society or whatever, but you don't, you've shown that you can't handle the responsibility of being a public figure and Mm -hmm. being admired by people who are vulnerable and of having the platform and the power and the money that you were granted in those, like in that heyday of beauty YouTubers, like, can you have a comeback? Sure. Maybe not in this industry, maybe not as an entertainer, maybe not as a public figure. I don't think that anyone deserves that and just gets to step back into that after behaving so egregiously. And I I feel similarly about Colleen Ballinger, like regardless of your feelings on the like severity of what she did, it was inappropriate. Right. (laughs) It was like anyone with any kind of sense could say, Mm -hmm. this is something I'm doing something wrong here and I shouldn't be doing it. And if you do something that irresponsible, you don't get to be a public figure anymore, I think. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, to your earlier point as well, the sort of undercurrent of this piece and a lot of pieces of this nature hinges on the idea that if something is being discussed online or if some sort of exploitation or harm is largely occurring online with influencers – then it's somehow less serious and yes. less deserving of investigation and skepticism than if it were something more physical, which is a slippery slope, uh, particularly in the era of social media and this type of exploitation with influencers and their audiences. And I also think, you know, it's exactly what you just said in terms of. There's this entitlement James seems to have throughout this piece that he has a career that he's worked for, and so he deserves to move on to the next step and release, in this case, a makeup line. Right. But as someone who was 
formerly a pretty big fan of James years ago, I think it's really fair to say that his career was not based on his entrepreneurial success or even his actual makeup ability, right. mm. but rather the way he was able to communicate with yes. the internet at large. Yeah, it was his personality, 100%. Like, it wasn't even it yes. wasn't even his talent, per se, right? Like, I mean, there were some of the beauty influencers who I think you could be like, oh, you, like Jacqueline Hill, who's frequently canceled, and, and she's not associated with any of this, except <laughs> I think she might be supporting him. But the worst you can say about her is that, like, she's been involved in sleazy companies and hasn't revealed stuff. Like, she... To my knowledge, there isn't anything actually, you know, like really gross about her. She at least was somebody who I was like, oh, you have a real skill at this. And and, yes. and and I think that's why and, – and her first palette was actually very good. I never had the lipsticks with mold on them. But his stuff <laughs> – but his stuff, to your point, yeah, it's like he, it was about – everything with him is about the personality, about the presentation, about him. And and that's that's the compelling part. Um, yeah. and, and honestly, I think that's yeah. what he – you know, he, he moves – he's been very successful moving into TikTok where – a lot of canceled YouTubers wind up because people have short memories um, or haven't been involved in it at all. And and yeah. he's done really well there. I wonder, I, I'm just curious in your opinion on this, do you think though, like clearly during the boom of like the the YouTube beauty influencers and and that style of makeup has fallen off and also those sorts of launches have, have gone away, Morphe clothes. There's, there's been a lot of shifts in the makeup industry, but do you think that people on TikTok will show up and buy products the same way that people on YouTube did? And do you think that people are going to buy his his paint or, or whatever the hell he's calling his his um, his stuff? <laughs> I would say no to both. And I think James is in an especially precarious position because there are some YouTubers. Jeffree Star is the obvious comparison. Ugh. Jeffree Star still puts out makeup yes. products. And people still buy them because mm-hmm. there is a contingent of people who have been his fan for – we're coming up on 20 years yes. at this point. Wow. And even people who have only been his fan for seven years, that's still an enormously long timeline of fandom compared to anyone on TikTok. 100%. And yeah, yeah. And I think like James also, he did not have that level of devotion that Jeffrey did when all of this happened because he just hadn't had as much time or as much experience sort of rising with the, the waves of internet culture. Yeah. Uh, so two things here. I mean, so just to really drill down into this, if you read the piece, the closest it really comes to going into like what the damage of sexual assault can be or not sexual assault because that's not what's being alleged, but grooming care is linking to a rain piece, right? That basically uh, defines it. Um, you know, my understanding, just to be really concrete about what the harm is when an adult goes after uh, minors in this situation is it affects your ability to uh, basically trust people. It gets you into like codependent, unhealthy um, sexual dynamics. You can have a lot of the same um, feelings that you're going to need to resolve that are similar to sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it it stunts your psychosexual development. It it literally wounds you in your ability to like form healthy relationships with other people here. Like this isn't trivial. This isn't some TikTok drama. We're literally talking about taking children and then having somebody they admire 
behave inappropriately with them in ways that very clearly, like it's undisputed, can up for the rest Mm -hmm. of their lives. That's really serious A. So when you read the piece, the thing that really upset me about this is you're like, what, five, six, seven paragraphs in, and you're going through all these glamour shots of James (laughs) Charles. Fair enough, it's Cosmo. I understand that's what you're signing up for. But then it's like a ad for this makeup line. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, every single aspect of this, I poured over it. Oh, the trauma of being canceled. This is really how I stayed sane, was obsessing about Mm. every detail. I got into the formulation of it. It's so... Like, they try to play it up front, like, hey, we understand the the celebrity comeback piece. We're hip to it. Like, we know that's what we're doing here. But then they step, they, like, doubly step into that stereotype. Mm-hmm. It's almost like this screen against cancel culture in a, a way that feels so inappropriate for the situation at hand. I mean, am I crazy feeling that way? No. And also, I feel like one thing that they actually doubled down on that I found really distasteful was when they talk about, you know, the boys who came forward, they mentioned reaching out to them and they say that one of them, you know, responded and asked if he would get paid. And they pass it off in the story in a way that they're casting judgment on him and sort of even using it to suggest that he was just in this for money and attention. And I find it so short-sighted to A, not realize that the boys who made these allegations against James Charles, James Charles were just as quote unquote canceled yes. as yep. he was. They all faced and they had no platform, no support system, no, no, no wealth, it, it, no resources. And, 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 and if, and if, and, no and, exactly. And if anything, you know, they were then immediately thrust in the spotlight that they didn't ask for and and ha- had attacks come after them. I mean, yeah, they they were taken. It, it, it they were just as canceled as James. To your point, but the power dynamic is completely different because James has a full team of people behind him and fans that will still support him. And even if his if he's privately going through a lot, and I'm sure that he was, it's not as if yeah. he doesn't know what to expect. Once you've gone through something yes. like this once, as I think even all of us can attest to, like it it does become numb. You 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 handle it better. It's not someone who's underage who all of a sudden goes from having a famous person creep on them and then not maybe knowing how they feel about it and maybe reciprocating, maybe not, whatever the situation might be, to then that being put on Maine and now you have tons of... of, of now you're of, known for now this. Now you're known for this and you're having tons of people coming out of the woodwork attacking you and, and you know, bringing things up to you even years later, right? We are going to yep. have to wrap this old topic up, but obviously there's a lot, a lot to unpack Simone, here. I'm going to, I'm going to beg the court for just one more quick topic. You thing. may get one more question. We have to talk about the statement in this, that there are no famous gay men <laughs> from 25 to 30. We cannot oh, leave this no. unremarked upon. Kat, you're a professional journalist. Fact check this. Is this statement true? No, and it was so funny. It's like, it's, it's like drag race doesn't exist. Sorry, go on, please go on. The drag, the entire drag race circus circuit alone disproves this notion. Uh, but a former beauty influencer named Sarah McGonagall on Twitter pointed out that she brought James to one of his first ever beauty conventions, where each single room there would be enough people in there to disprove that statistic. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, did did was it specifically twenty five to thirty that he said is the age range? Twenty to twenty five, even worse. Oh, okay, <laughs> freaking oh. Joe Locke, the star oh. of Heart yes. Stopper, debuted on Netflix last year. Oh. Stop it. Uh, okay. Oh, well, thank so you. Self involved. <laughs> thank you for that quick fact check. Uh, really good. Where can people go to read your reporting, Cat? They can follow me on Twitter at Kat Timbarge for as long as it lasts. <laughs> <laughs> and we will never know. And that's K-A-T, Kat Tenbarge, T-E-N-B-A-R-G-E. All right. Go there. Go follow. Thank you so much, Kat, for coming Thank on the show. You. Thank you for having me. And Kat will be joining us, if you are a Rocket Booster subscriber, for our bonus segment uh, where we will be discussing the advent of Barbenheimer, <laughs> the film event that will change the world. Yes. All right, let's talk about what we're doing this week. Uh, Christina, let's start with you. Well, um, as we're going to get into in Booster, I've got some um, um, Barbenheimer plans. But the real thing is I'm going to my third and probably final Taylor Swift concert on Sunday. And oh. uh, my, my, my friend Samantha is, is flying in. Um, I'm very excited to take her and um, we're going to have a great time. So that's that's what I'm doing this week. It's 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 like the, the final Tay weekend, um, unless I somehow manage to get tickets to uh, another show. So, <laughs> so yeah. excited for you. It, yes. Uh, Brianna, what about you? Uh, I don't know if y'all can hear me, but I can tell you what I'm doing this weekend. Other than uh, seeing Barbie and Oppenheimer, obviously, uh, I'm getting ready to go on the road again uh, for fundraising. uh, And hopefully I'm going to be able to uh, go see uh, my niece uh, next weekend, which I'm really looking forward to. Oh, yay. I'm just working. My beloved uh, direct report, Christina, is on vacation this week. So I'm making TikToks for Polycon's <laughs> TikTok account. Um, and that's that's my entire week. Um, and then it's race weekend again. So the Hungarian Grand Prix will be on. All right. Uh, as of ne- last week, we no longer do our social media shout out. I'll just remind everyone. This is the last time I'll remind you. You can find all of our social links in the show notes, uh, Mastodon, Blue Sky, Twitter, YouTube, etc. Find them there. Uh, if we end up getting any new ones, we will shout them out here at the end of the show. But otherwise, uh, that is the end of that. You're on your own. You're on your freaking own. And we're not sitting in our hot apartments for five extra minutes while I tell you something that you have heard every week for the last eight years. Uh, and that is our show. Thanks, everyone. This episode wow, of Rocket is terminated. Is so mean. <laughs> wow. Wow. You're really mean. Wow. <laughs> What our a, what, listeners I was going to say, what about the new listeners, deserve. Simone? What about the new listeners, They can Simone? use the show notes. <laughs> wow. They're not going to come back now. Damn, you're feisty. Yeah, it's all over for that them. so mean. I love, love you guys. It. You know what? You can find me at Brianna Wu. <laughs> <laughs> I respect you, new listeners. Unlike Simone. <laughs> <laughs>